Indecision and delay. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he is Jeremy S. Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work appears at houstonchronicle.com. We're both reporting from Houston today, where the Republican Party of, Te- uh, Republican Party of Texas Convention is getting underway. And, uh, Jeremy, it's a little bit smaller, a little bit, um, I don't know if it's as raucous as it would have been in the past, but uh, there's definitely a different feel here at this convention this year. Yeah, I wonder if some of it is just a delay. You know, remember, mm-hmm. we haven't seen everybody, you know, from all these parts of the state together at one of these things and mm-hmm. since 2018. It's like this is like and, – and I've been already told by some people, it's like they're walking into these rooms and like, who are these people? <laughs> a lot of people have changed <laughs> right. over. So it's mm-hmm. a whole new crowd and, you know, it's, it's very, very interesting and dynamic here. It's like I'm, I'll be interested to see if more people show up over the next couple of days or if mm-hmm. this is just going to be a smaller convention in the post-pandemic yeah. world. I had heard uh, early in the week that they were getting to something like 4,000 registrations for delegates. They were topping out at something like that. Uh, Of course, people can still register once they get to Houston. So we'll see, like you say, whether it grows a bit. But I think it's definitely smaller than, say, a decade ago when the Republican Party of Texas Convention would have been 10,000 or 12,000 people like that. They would like to compare it to the Communist Party of China's convention, which is the only bigger one on the planet, the only bigger, uh, you know, as far as like participants in the convention. Um, we have a lot of news to get to, and we're going to do it quick here, and uh, we'll tell you about what's going on at the convention as well. Uh, but there is some uh, more developments out of Washington today uh, about our top story, which is the response both at the state and federal level to the shooting in Uvalde and gun violence all across the United States. Remember, our senior senator, John Cornyn, uh, has been leading these bipartisan talks on some kind of gun legislation in Washington. And here's what he said just this week. Every time one of these shootings occurs, we hear people say, do something. Unfortunately, there are also people who say, do nothing. And I, for one, am not going to be part of that cause as long as parents fear for the safety of their children in their schoolroom and children fear being in the classroom. I firmly believe there are things that we can do that do not infringe the constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens. But Jeremy, to do nothing stir- is starting to sound like what might actually happen, right? I mean, there's a lot of stall and delay there, and uh, Senator Cornyn and others are sending signals uh, that some of the key provisions in the framework that they had previously released, that some of those things can't get enough support from Republicans to pass through the Senate. And I also see that some Democrats are saying that if you start to take out these things like the uh, the, boy- the so-called boyfriend loophole, uh, the incentives for red flag laws and all of that, then a lot of Democrats are saying, well, then what's the point of supporting this? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and John Cornyn's attempt to try to sell this to the Republican audiences, he's been saying over and over again, all the things this bill doesn't do. You know, if you listen to it enough, it's like, oh, we're not doing anything on red flag laws. We're not mm-hmm. doing anything to take weapons away from, you know, law abiding citizens. You know, uh, you know, they're still going to allow people, you know, between the ages of 18 and 21 to buy guns, but there might be a review that could be used. So you can see he's walked a lot of it back, you know, in terms of like how aggressive, you know, to try to placate the Republican side. But I think right. it's to what you said. I think a lot of Democrats are going, so what's in this bill now? Right. And and just about an hour ago before we started taping this, you know, uh, you know Cornyn said like the indecision and delay is jeopardizing the likelihood of this bill. Right. And so mm-hmm. now I'm thinking the chances of getting this thing done before July 4th seems a lot less 
you know, likely now than it did just a few days ago, where Cornyn sounded like he thought he could get this to the floor next week. Now, right, it was not so much. Going to happen real fast, apparently, but now maybe not. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy is Cornyn's Democratic counterpart in these talks, and he was under the impression that the hard work was basically done. Well, the heavy lifting is done. We've negotiated the framework. Um, we should be able to get that framework into legislative text. And if we do, I'll be you know, very pleased to earn Senator McConnell's support. I think that indicates we'll get you know, well north of 60 votes necessary to pass this bill. And I think the reason we're picking up Republican votes right now is because you know, what we include in this bill is wildly popular. The public wants red flag laws, the ability to take guns away from people who are threatening suicide or mass slaughter. They support closing the boycott friend loophole to make sure that all domestic abusers can't then go buy a gun. Um, these are popular mainstream proposals, and uh, I think we're going to get them down into paper this week. We're going to try to get this passed before uh, we leave town for the July 4th recess, and I hope we'll have a big bipartisan vote. So, Jeremy, it's a sign of how quickly all this stuff can change. And while you have Democrats saying that hey, maybe we won't even support this if it doesn't have some of these uh, provisions that have some more teeth in them, uh, if you will. Uh, look, you didn't have um, a lot of the gun safety groups uh, dismissing this at all. In fact, they were happy to see some kind of progress come out of those talks. Right. When the uh, when the framework was released, you had groups that have, you know, real credibility among, you know, the either wherever you want to label it gun safety, gun control, whatever. I mean, mom's demand action is a heavy hitter, right? On that on, on that side of the debate, uh, Shannon Watts is the founder of that group. She was on MSNBC and she said, look, even though some liberals want to say that this framework wasn't really all that big a deal, there are things in that proposal, that, that loose proposal that would really save lives and people should not lose sight of that. It is an important first step. And, and the fact that we are breaking this log jam if we do, and I think we will, it's historic. And we have to keep in mind that just a decade ago, about a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Today, none do. And so the fact that Republicans are in conversation with Democrats and coming up with a framework that would save lives, I mean, it, it is very important. And I also want to keep in mind the fact that this legislation will save lives, whether it's closing the boyfriend loophole or making background checks more more strict on people who want to buy guns that are under 21, or whether it's red flag laws and, and giving money to the states to make those more robust. All of that will save thousands of lives, and we can't lose sight of that. Senator Cornyn was having to really back up in his comments. So to your point, he was having to do all of these, uh, you know, either speeches or uh, media appearances. I saw uh, where he was on the air with Dana Lesh, who I, I guess at one point she was and may still be one of the spokespeople for the NRA. Uh, so very involved in Second Amendment issues. And I won't play any of that interview because it was, I'll put it this way, it was a little tortured for Senator Cornyn. And I, I noticed that as uh, Dana Lesh was asking him questions, you could tell he had to think a little bit before he would answer her, right? He was trying to be very specific uh, and not say anything that would inflame that side of the debate, right? Uh, listen to uh, someone from that side of the debate. That would be Congressman Chip Roy, right? He's there with Dana Lesh and all those folks who say that anything, including red flag laws or closing the boyfriend loophole, any of this stuff would be a restriction that would lead to confiscating everybody's guns. We have a Second Amendment because we understand in this country that there are some things, inalienable rights, that you cannot justly take away from a free and equal human being. Tyrants disarm the people they intend to oppress. Those are the facts. 
Jewish people in Germany were prohibited from owning arms. 13 million Jews were exterminated by the Nazis. The Soviets instituted gun control and millions were killed. 20 million dissidents were rounded up and exterminated. Mao disarmed the Chinese people. 20 million dissidents were exterminated. In Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge were able to take advantage of the fact that limited gun ownership to just hunters and killed one and a half million to three million Cambodians. Now, to me, it seems like a little bit of a leap to compare making sure that domestic abusers don't get guns to comparing that to, you know, folks who had their guns stripped away and then were victims of genocide. Seems like a little bit of a jump, a little bit of a leap, Jeremy. But but that argument aside for just a second, um, this is why that kind of rhetoric and that kind of feeling within the Republican Party is why Senator Cornyn is backing up. So here we are in Houston. I'm at the Republican Party of Texas uh, convention, as you are. And yesterday I was it was um, Wednesday afternoon. I was going to get my media credential to cover that either they want you to have the badge so you look official so you can walk through the convention hall and all that. Um, and this is the first convention I can remember where the media and the delegates all checked in at the same location. I had never seen that before. And I'm only mentioning it, because, and that's fine. I'm happy to be among the people. Um, but this was interesting. As I was picking up my media credential, the lanyard that, you know, the thing that goes around your neck that, that you know, holds the credential in place, it's sponsored by John Cornyn. So here you have, you know, members of the quote unquote liberal media wearing John Cornyn lanyards. Um, and there was a lady next to me, and very nice lady, who was handing out lanyards uh, with the branding of what I'll call an alternative news publication. And she was saying, don't wear that lanyard of the rhino John Cornyn. And I said, rhino John Cornyn, said, what, what's up with that? And she said, well, he's the guy voting to take our gun rights away. And so I'm wondering, Jeremy, when, when Senator Cornyn appears at this convention, when he talks to the convention hall, uh, if he's going to get booed by some of the people uh, who are in attendance, I mean, they're walking around calling him um, a, uh, a rhino. And I'm wondering as well, and I was looking around, uh, you know, the, the, at the folks this afternoon who are walking around the convention, I was looking to see how many people had switched their lanyards to something else. It, because the one they're given, every one of them gets a John Cornyn lanyard. And there were quite a few of them, the delegates, who were wearing the lanyard sponsored by that alternative news website. Yeah, and and, it, and this is a great point to remind our dear listeners that the Republicans who go to these conventions, they are not your garden variety Republican. These are not your, oh, I vote every four years for the president guy or the, even the guy who sometimes votes in you know primaries. No, these are the hardest right of the hardest right. These are the people who, uh, as, as I talked to uh, University of Houston political science professor Brandon Roddinghouse uh, earlier today, and we were kind of talking about it. And it's like he said, you know, these people are kind of outliers in the party. So even though jo John Cornyn had zero problem winning his reelection in the of primary, yeah. uh, he gets like blowback from these folks. And you heard it in 2018, even you know, back in 2018, when he went got to the stage, there was a rumbling of booing that was starting to happen. But he was able to shut it down because he's very good at giving a speech, you know, where he like immediately was like saying, you know, God bless Texas. And, you know, how about, you know, the Alamo and all this other good stuff that made the crowd applaud for him. So he knows how to kind of manage that. So you, it's, it's kind of fun to watch him still come to these things, knowing that he's not always going to get the greatest reception. He's not going to get the applause like Ted Cruz would in this crowd. But 
outside of here, he's going to do better than Ted Cruz in a lot of elections, right? You know, he, he's going to blow his opponents away while Ted Cruz is like, you know, squeaking by by less than 3% in an election. And it just shows you how different this crowd is compared to what you see out there in regular Republican land just around like the neighborhood grocery store or whatever. Right. These aren't them. <laughs> there is a difference between the base of the party versus activists within the party. Those are not interchangeable, right? The people who come to a deal like this are the activists in the party. I mean, I would point out that uh, these are the folks who want really all or nothing, right? They want the Second Amendment to go to extend as far as possible, that no restrictions whatsoever. Uh, and the fact that Cornyn would even talk to Democrats about making any kind of a deal on that is very offensive to them. So they want all or nothing. Um, look, Cornyn has won every one of his elections for decades. You can't say that about Ted Cruz, right? Now, someone else who's not technically at the convention, but he's nearby the convention is Governor Abbott. And you'll be attending or, or checking out one of his events tonight, Jeremy. It was very interesting to look back uh, four years ago, the last time that uh, Republicans gathered in person back in 2018. Remember, they do this every two years. So they missed one, right? Because of the height of the pandemic restrictions. It was actually supposed to be here in Houston, but it got canceled. Um, Governor Abbott, his team was everywhere at the convention four years ago. And now he's just kind of holding a meet and greet across the street. And I saw where uh, some of the state Republican executive committee members were kind of uh, unhappy about that. They were they were sort of grousing about the fact that the governor wasn't going to be uh, in the convention hall giving a speech as Senator Cruz, Senator Cornyn uh, are, are supposedly going to do. We still, I still haven't seen a full speaker lineup, by the way, which is also kind of interesting. But this morning, I attended the uh, speech, the opening speech for the convention by Matt Rinaldi, who is the chairman of the Texas GOP. And he never mentioned the governor by name, which I found interesting. He said that this is a party that belongs to the grassroots. He was saying it's the activist party, basically. He said it doesn't belong to the governor, doesn't belong to our senators or any other office holders. It belongs to you, as he you know, gestured to the people who are uh, there in the convention hall. Um, and he not only did he not mention the governor by name and then say it doesn't belong to the governor or the, the party doesn't belong to uh, to the governor. He also went out of his way to omit Abbott when giving praise to Republicans for standing up against, quote unquote, woke corporations. Uh, Chairman Rinaldi said that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who he, he called out by name, he said that they have been the ones to battle those woke companies like Disney. Yeah, and what an amazing, you know, trying to wrap my head around all this. It's just been a crazy, you know, deal altogether. You know, the relationship Abbott has with this party is just awkward, right? You know, it's just like in 2018, like you mentioned, like it was like Abbott's convention. Like his name was everywhere. He had this like training program. He was handing out little mini footballs. He was doing like, you know, oh, yeah, all the, sorts of gimmies, you know, that he was well, handing they had, out. They had that uh, Abbott University that they were promoting yeah. everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. They had Abbott University, which were these training programs they were doing for all their people, and they were doing them on a regular cycle. You know, it's like, and they were really interesting. I, I snuck into one for a little bit before they threw me out, but you know, but it was a really interesting kind of. You know, he was everywhere. You know, at that. You know, and this time around. You can see he's not. And so and why is that? Well, you just heard in Rinaldi, right? And Rinaldi gives this speech where he doesn't mention the governor at all. Uh, and think about like who ran against Abbott in the primary last time. It was literally the Republican Party chairman, <laughs> Alan West, you know, last year who left the chairmanship to go after Greg Abbott and go after him hard. 
You know, it's like and criticize him every quarter. Remember, he the the party chairman literally attended a rally outside the governor's mansion mm-hmm. to criticize him. That yeah. doesn't happen in other states. Like in Florida, if the Republican Party chairman started, you know, protesting Ron DeSantis at the governor's mansion, the guy would be gone. They would totally kick him out of the party. That you know, work, it's just like yeah. it doesn't happen. But here, totally different game. And in fact, by Abbott skipping speaking to the main crowd like he's the first governor that's going to have missed that you really since you know bush in 2000 you know george w bush when he was governor he did not speak to the convention in you know 2020 or 2000 when he was running for president because he's worried about the general election right and so he just skipped it all together perry always went to these things you know abbott went to all these you know it's like they always usually have a bigger role and so this is kind of a weird thing where he's doing it kind of off-site you know he's not a presence all over the convention and it's like you know he just has a a different relationship with this party they're never going to love him but he can't afford to offend them anymore because he needs that energy to help him in this general election because you know, this is, you know, whether it's going to be a close race or not is mm-hmm. to be decided, but it's certainly right. going to be closer than what he's experienced in his political career up to this point. Well, I still believe that Republican leadership, both in this state and nationally, must, uh, you know, have, I don't know if fear is the right word, but they have some concern. Uh, and it's not just it's not just based on a feeling that, that they must see some internal polling, some numbers that indicate that there are factors uh, at play that may uh, put some of their electoral chances at risk. And whether that's uh, the U.S. Senate majority, I mean, I think that's why you have McConnell and Cornyn trying to work on something with guns, even though it seems to sort of be falling apart right now. And of course, we'll keep track of that. We like to say at Quorum Report that when, whenever they're doing a legislative deal, that you know the wheels can be on that deal or the wheels can come off. And it, it happens it on and off, you know, and um, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but I do think that they wouldn't even be having those conversations and that Abbott would not be behaving in certain ways if he didn't have some concern and his his team didn't have some concern uh, about his chances in this race. I mean, it wouldn't be uh, hiding's not the right word, but I think he would be more prominent at this convention for sure. Um, but right now, with so many volatile issues out there, guns, Roe versus Wade all the rest, maybe appearing in front of this activist group here in Houston could be the wrong look, Jeremy. Well, and, and, and he, I kind of, I have to respect what they're, they are doing. They're not, te- you know, the, the Abbott people aren't telling me, you know, they're doing this, you know, intentionally. They always intended to be somewhere around the convention, they swear mm-hmm. to me. But what's <laughs> interesting about this, but this limits any chance that he could be booed on stage. Of course. Because, you, know? Yeah, right. you know, and mm-hmm. that would have been the story. No matter what, you know, every outlet, whether it's the far left, you know, publications out there, the far right, you know, everybody would have been hitting on that. And all of us in the middle, you know, would have been like, how can you avoid it if there's a booing as the governor takes the state? But but I'm not saying he would have gotten booed, but he's taken that completely out of the equation. It's like he's not going to have to face that at all. And he gets to move on and have his own event, you mm-hmm. know, in a relatively smaller venue. Uh, the Rustic is, you know, it's a, it's not your typical bar little, where he's right. doing this thing. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more of a music venue mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. But um, so it's a, it's a little bit bigger than your typical like neighborhood bar. So he's not slinking across the street to a bar, <laughs> you know, with a handful of delegates. <laughs> it's like they no. should be you know, a, a better swath of people over there. But his critics like – the Don Huffines of the world or the Alan right. West of the world, they're probably not going to go over there. 
Well, and in fact, um, we, we can see, uh, you know, in real time, this is kind of the fun of being at a convention, we can see which way these activists go. Some of them will go to Abbott's deal. Don Huffines, who you mentioned, has his Liberty Foundation event at the same exact time this evening. So some people will be going there. Some people will be going over to Abbott's deal. And of course, he's taking uh, incoming political fire uh, from all sides. Beto O'Rourke and his social media team have just been slamming Abbott. Uh, They've just been in nonstop attack mode. um, And really, I guess, throughout this entire campaign. But really, I feel like it's ramped up a lot after the shooting in Uvalde, where, you know, you talked about, Jeremy, the idea that maybe it was sort of either out of the out of the norm or whatever that you would have uh, a candidate who's challenging a governor to be so on the attack right after a tragedy. But th- but as you also pointed out, hey, all of this is out of the norm. You know, to have 19 kids and, and two teachers shot, uh, you know, in a, in a massacre, uh, people are having all kinds of reactions to this. And one of the big criticisms of Abbott is that, as we talked about before, when he first showed up in that community, one of the first things out of his mouth was, this could have been worse, which he certainly didn't need to say that. But it's kind of one of the things that um, politicians and uh, others will say immediately because they do want to praise law enforcement. It's almost like a reflex, right? Like, hey, it could have been worse, but the cops were doing their job, so it wasn't that bad. But of course, as we know in the story, it turned out very differently. This is the mashup of Abbott and news coverage that was put out on social media by O'Rourke's campaign this week. It could have been worse. Officers waiting to barge into the classroom knew victims inside were alive and that they needed help. The reason it was not worse. One hour and 17 minutes from when the shooting began to when officers officially entered. Is because law enforcement officials. They waited first for their own shields, then for keys to the classroom door. Did what they do. There were 19 members of law enforcement in the hallway outside of the two classrooms where 19 children and two teachers were killed for more than 40 minutes. Amazing courage. It's a move that contradicts active shooter protocols that have been adopted by law enforcement agencies across the country. And it is a fact that because of their quick response, getting on the scene, being able to respond to the gunman, Investigators are still trying to determine how many people could have been saved with faster action. I was misled. So then Beto's campaign goes on to say that Abbott misled Texans. Well, if he wants to criticize Abbott, what would Beto do differently? He says if he were governor, then there would be a special session of the legislature unfolding right this minute. The governor in response to 21 people, 19 children, two teachers, he's called for a committee. Now, I can call for a committee. You can call for a committee. We might as well call all of ourselves a committee today. Uniquely, the governor of the state of Texas can call for a special session. Okay, what would be on the agenda? Number one, common sense steps to reduce gun violence in Texas in our schools, universal background checks, red flag laws, extreme risk protection orders. And I'd put this one out there and we may have debates on it. We might have to compromise a little bit, but I'd do everything in my power to get AR-15s and AK-47s out of our communities so we don't have to worry about going up against them in our schools, in our movie theaters, in our supermarkets, or in our churches. Two, 
I'd say, listen, we do have some mental health care challenges. I know it was raised by the governor. Let's address it. I would expand Medicaid in the state of Texas and bring $10 billion of your federal tax dollars back in to the state, hire more providers, connect more people with care. And to the trustees' comments about public education, I put on the agenda, we are going to cancel the STAR test, and we are going to replace it with something that educators come up with that does a far better job of providing the diagnostic that we need in our classrooms. Now you're cooking with gas. When you tell any crowd in Texas you're going to get cancel the STAR test, everyone will love it, right? I, I, I can tell you, Republicans, Democrats, every member of the legislature, no matter which party, they have all heard this from a version of this from parents in their districts. The kids take too many damn tests and it needs to stop. Right, Jeremy? I mean, it, nothing to do with the shooting in Uvalde, but you can see where he's working all these other issues in there as well. And one other thing about it, you heard at the beginning of that where O'Rourke was saying a version of what he said when he ran for president, which is we'll get the AR-15s and AK-47s out of the hands of people. He didn't say, hell yes, we're going to take your gun. But I think that the way they're talking about that has shifted in the wake of this tragedy. Oh, absolutely. That's changed, right? Like, mm -hmm. we, we've seen the struggle on this for, you know, Beto O'Rourke, you know, on AR-15s and whether he's going to take them or not. And like, it, like you know, obviously during the uh, the, go the Senate race in 2018, uh, he was careful not to go that far. But then, of course, then he did in 2019, you know, at, you know, at during the presidential run, he was much more aggressive in it. When he started this campaign, he kind of rolled back and said, we're not going to be taking AR-15s you know, from anyone. It's like, you know, we're going to protect people's Second Amendment rights. And and then it shifted a little bit more, you know, obviously after the shooting uh, to where then he was saying, yes, we need to do a buyback program, you know, to do you know, like he wasn't going to make it mandatory. But like so he's he's all over the place on this. And you can see the Abbott campaign is going to pound him day and night on this as we it's get coming. you know closer down you know into the into the uh, election cycle mm -hmm. uh, so y you can tell he's going to have a vulnerability there but you wonder if like is it as vulnerable as it was three weeks ago you know i'm not so sure it's like i i think that issue has completely changed for a lot of people and remember when this campaign is going to be happening it's like you know people are going to be going back to their schools in august and september you know this shooting will be back in people's minds. You don't even have to do any campaign ads and everybody's going to be thinking about, you know, school safety and their children and what the heck do I do, you know, yeah. if this happens to my kid. I'm going to give Abbott some credit here. Um, he is, no matter what the situation that's unfolding, no matter what the headlines are in the news, that doesn't really matter. This campaign has message discipline with, with everything that's going on with the shooting, with, uh, you know, with all of the turmoil in this country, what do you think Abbott in his paid advertising is focused on? Now, a lot of this is digital. We're not seeing stuff on TV yet. But but what do you think that they're focused on, Jeremy? It, I sum it up for you in one word. Ready? It's, well, actually, the border. That, that's only one thing. Actually, it's two things. It's the border and himself. We are doing everything we possibly can prevent people from coming across a border into the state of Texas. There's only been one government official in the United States of America who has negotiated with and talked with Mexican officials about the border. And that's me. We as a state will be continuing to deploy more resources, tools, and strategies. This process is made far more effective by all of us working together. Jeremy, there's only one person 
in the whole country who can fix what's going on on the border. And that's Greg Abbott. That's me. You see, he in, in the video of, of that, he points to himself. It's, it's almost like a little gratuitous, but it sounded a lot to me like Donald Trump saying, oh, I alone can fix it. Right. I'm the only one who can do this. Well, and, 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 you know, so there was a poll out earlier this week from Quinnipiac University and it had a lot of stuff in there and I don't want to overplay the poll. But the, the most interesting part of that poll to me was they, they asked voters, Democratic and Republican, what are the most important issues, you know, going into this election cycle? Mm-hmm. And 57 percent of the Republicans said it was the border. Of <laughs> Number one yeah. by far. Nothing was even close Nothing to Nothing is it. even right in the same Democrats. Mm-hmm. Democrats said it was 4% who said it was the border. <laughs> and so you can see the, the conversation is not anywhere near for Democrats. The number one issue was gun safety and gun control. Uh, and of course, with the Republicans, it was nowhere. It was like, that was like 2%. And so you have this situation where, you know, when Abbott's talking about the border, he's aiming at this, this party base. Again, not mm-hmm. necessarily, there's just the convention people here that we're right. here dealing with in Houston, but the Republican basis is like, look, Let's just keep hitting this issue because that's the most important thing they're seeing. They're seeing it on Fox every night. You know, mm-hmm. they're gonna, they're seeing these people crossing the river, and we're going to play into that because we need those people fired up. If those people aren't fired up going to November, we're in trouble. You know, and so they're going to keep doing this until they're required to go back to the middle if they need to. But if yeah. they can just keep pounding you know red meat issues like this, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to feel a lot better going into November. Uh, when they can then worry about, you know, what they're doing in the, the suburban areas and the more independent mm-hmm. type voters out there. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things. If, as long as it works, you keep on doing it. Um, the uh, the polling, without getting too much into it, I thought it was interesting that you did have that Quinnipiac poll that had uh, Abbott and Beto uh, within five uh, points. Um, everything I'm seeing based on all the polls that we've seen all along, Jeremy, both, both some public and private polling, I would say probably more like a 10 point race still. That's just kind of where, where I'm at on the whole thing. I mean, who knows? We'll see. I was trying to remind people this week that polling is not a predictor of the future. That's not how it works. It's supposed to be a diagnostic tool to kind of tell you what is happening right now. And campaigns are supposed to be using it to make adjustments, uh, you know, as they go forward. Um, then you also had this poll, which was a real outlier, uh, this uh, whatever it was, blueprint polling or something. It said that uh, Beto was behind by about 20, which sounded way, that number is way too high. Um, but, but I also thought that Republicans who were excited about that poll, well, they would have to also be excited about the fact that the same poll showed that even a lot of Republicans want to see gun control. Yeah. Right. So the, so before you get ahead of yourself, read the whole poll. That's my whole point. Um, you know, speaking of this gun, um, this gun situation, gun violence in the United States, a prominent conservative, Brett Kavanaugh, justice on the Supreme Court, was threatened. Uh, apparently, there was a guy who was arrested near his home uh, with a weapon. Um, and there's a real concern. Right. And they rushed a bill through the United States Congress to try to offer more and, and provide more security for the Supreme Court justices. Senator Ted Cruz. Before speaking at the GOP convention here in Houston, he was, of course, on Fox News Channel after that guy was arrested. Um, And he said, you know what? And I found this fascinating, Jeremy. Senator Cruz says there can be real world consequences for the way that politicians speak and that sometimes they can incite people to violence. 
Well, listen, the, the left is angry, and, and the rhetoric that comes from their political leaders, from their radical extreme, is getting more and more heightened. And, and the problem is what we saw early this morning with, with the lunatic that came to murder Justice Kavanaugh. That, that is a lunatic following through on the deranged rhetoric uh, from elected Democrats. And, and, and when you see it is now becoming more and more common that leftists scream, curse, harass, as you know, Maxine Waters instructed uh, leftists to do that. And, 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 it is, and, and it is deliberately inciting violence. You know, when this opinion was leaked, I believe this opinion was leaked by a left-wing law clerk who wanted precisely this to happen, who wanted the justices of the majority to be threatened, to be bullied. So <laughs> you have Cruz saying that if a politician is inflammatory in their rhetoric, that that can have real-world violent consequences. Do you remember that Governor Abbott, at some point, it wasn't a full-on apology, but they did walk back some language after the El Paso shooting, when Governor Abbott had sent out a fundraising letter talking about an invasion from Mexico, all these people who are coming across the border invading Texas, which sounded a whole lot like it was almost a copy paste of what the actual shooter in El Paso had said about why he drove all the way from Allen, Texas, which is probably more than 10 hours from El Paso. He drove all the way from the DFW suburbs to El Paso County to hunt Mexicans. That's what he was going there to do, right? And so here you have uh, Cruz saying, hey, why don't we all calm down? Jeremy, do you think maybe folks on all sides could listen to that? Oh, boy, wouldn't that be nice? You know, it's like, you know, given all the hearings on the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol, it's, mm -hmm. just, it, you know, it, it's almost, it underscores the whole point that Ted Cruz is kind of making there. I'm not, yeah. I'm sure he's not trying to make the same point about January 6th, but right. it's like, you know, the consequences of the words, you know, of political leaders heading into January 6th, even yes. we're not talking about Trump, you know, it's like even before Trump, you know, the, and other, you know, politicians and other members of Congress, the language that was being used, mm -hmm. you know, can certainly inflame people. And there's sure. a point where like, you know, we, I don't know. I don't know if we can ever rein that back in, you know, we're not right. going back to the 1980s where, you know, like some things you just didn't say, but now it's mm -hmm. like, no, it's like, if you go pretty outrageous, you kind of get rewarded with a lot of TV time. Every time. You know? Yeah. Well, every single time. And you mentioned the January 6th hearings, of course, Senator Cruz was key in what happened that day and in, in making his objections in the Senate. And what we're seeing out of the January 6th hearings, part of what we're seeing is that President Trump and people around him not only knew that the election claims they were making were not true, that, that you know even the attorney general had said to the president, hey, this stuff is BS, but there were also people saying to Trump that what you're doing could very well lead to people becoming violent, Be, it, it, that, that they, had, they must have had some understanding of that. It's not like uh, President Trump didn't hear anything about that before the violence unfolded on January 6th. Um, one, one other thing here, um, and it's a, it's a significant deal, although you never read too much into the results of a special election, Jeremy. There's always, you know, very specific 
you know, uh, uh, factors that play into what happens in a special election. It's always also very low turnout. So it's not necessarily uh, representative of the larger electorate that will be voting either even in a primary or in the general election in November. Uh, but you did see that Republicans did get a win and I'll give them credit. They got a big win in South Texas. This is where they have put so much of their treasure and so much of their resources into flipping the whole region, right? They, they, they want to get down into the valley and they want to elect congressmen and women. They want to elect state senators and state representatives, et cetera, in a way they have not been able to do. I mean, that's been a democratic area for a century, right? So even though responsible analysts would tell you never to read too much into one of these things, I was watching Sean Hannity on Fox. <laughs> And of course, he would like to do the opposite and read as much as possible into this victory by Myra Flores, uh, who is the congresswoman-elect, and he had her on his show. We see something happening. We always do polling in election years, and we break things down demographically. What we've been witnessing is a dramatic shift uh, among Hispanic American voters, African American voters, uh, the youth vote in particular. Uh, uh, women voters are out there. They're all leaving the Democratic Party, at least on paper for now. We've seen a few political earthquakes. I would argue yours, your race is a huge potential bellwether for what may happen in, in November. Why do you think that people in demographics that historically have been in the Democratic Party or the Democratic Party coalition, why are they now leaning towards the Republicans and conservatives? Well, I feel like the Democrat Party has walked away from the Hispanic community. They've gone so far left and they don't represent our values. People always ask me, Myra, how can you be a Republican whenever you were born in Mexico? And that's that clearly shows me that they know nothing about our culture. I was raised with strong conservative values. We're all about faith and family and hard work. That's who we are. So our values do really align with the Republican Party. But I do feel that, you know, for a long time prior to 2020, no one was really paying attention to the Hispanic community. And I'm grateful that finally the Republican Party is investing in the Hispanic community because we are the future. But the Democrat Party has completely abandoned us and taken us for granted. They feel entitled to our vote and they feel they don't really have to work for it. And what we're showing now is that, yes, you do have to work to earn our vote. And that's why we won this special election, because we worked hard. We knocked thousands of doors, made thousands of phone calls. I have the most hardworking team. And that is the reason why we're also going to win that re-election in November, because no one is going to outdo the work that we're doing. So some of what was said there, Jeremy, can be debated. Right. I mean, this idea that Hispanics are uh, Latinos are more conservative than Democrats uh, have assumed in their campaigns. I would point out that this is I think this is one of the narratives that the national media uh, falls for uh, a lot faster than we do around here because we've been watching this stuff. Uh, you'll see the headlines about how Hispanics in Texas are moving toward Republicans. Hispanics in Texas are moving toward uh, the party of President Trump. Right. You, you saw a lot of this in 2020. And now you're seeing it in the coverage of uh, this congressional race. There are more Hispanic people where we are in the Houston area than there are in the Valley. Same thing in DFW, right? And the vast majority of Hispanics in Houston and DFW vote for Democrats, 
right? So by the numbers, Hispanics really aren't moving toward Republicans. In one region, they are. I think people get caught up on, you know, certain demographic factors um, and the fact that these folks are Latino, that does matter. But they're also largely rural voters. They are a little more conservative Democrats. These are Democrats who have elected Democratic officials who are, you know, who would say they're pro-life and are more fiscally conservative uh, than some of the uh, some of their other, you know, you know, Democrats in other parts of the state. Uh, but the one thing that she said is, so you can debate all that. People will hash it out and people will send me hate mail and, and tweet at me that I don't know what I'm talking about. But one thing that she said you cannot debate, one thing she's absolutely right about is if you want to win the election, you have to work. Right. And the Democrats really didn't put resources into this race. The, uh, you know, the national Republicans really did in that in this special election. It's one of those deals where they want, and you've heard this a million times, Jeremy, Republicans want the mo, the big mo. They want momentum, you know, going into the next round of elections. And they can say now they pulled it off in South Texas. They did what a lot of people thought they couldn't do. Um, and But it's done by spending the money, like she said, knocking on the doors, making phone calls. And if you don't do those things, guess what? You're not going to win these races, especially when they are such low turnout affairs. Yeah, and and it's kind of a lesson going into November. And I've, I've probably said this a hundred times, but like you know, the, you know, you have to be a hard worker. You know, like the, the one thing we get out of like 2018, you know, better work was so close to beating Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling people, like, one of the reasons is he he clearly worked hard. You know, it's like he was everywhere. You know, it's like right. granted he has the occupation, you know, as a congressman to kind of do that stuff. Uh, but but like you got to put in like serious effort. You got to travel the state. You got to go to do. You got to knock on doors. You got to do stuff. And we kind of <laughs> saw that didn't happen. You know, in in 2020. You know, for a lot of Democrats, you know, they they didn't do that because of the pandemic, as you pointed out. They weren't you know going door to door as many places as Republicans were, and so like. Uh, they're going to have to get much more aggressive. They they have to kind of, you know, you know, understand like every day you're, you're behind. If you're not running mm -hmm. every day, like you're falling behind, then you're kind of in the wrong spot. And to all the political operatives who might be like, you know, listening to the show right now, I, you know, don't, don't be drinking anything. You know, you know I don't want you to spit things all over your, you know, car or whatever. <laughs> here it comes. But, here comes the punchline for Jeremy. We are 100 days until the military and overseas ballots are out. You know, it's like we're a hundred days I, out. I had a it's feeling like, that you would know exactly when the military and overseas ballots went out. I I knew I that I knew that, that about you that you watch <laughs> that you have it like a on a on a stopwatch. <laughs> You've got a timer <laughs> for when all that stuff comes out. Well, I'll tell you what one uh, what one political consultant shared with me one time was whenever they do candidate recruitment, you know, somebody will want to run for office, and uh, one of the things they do is they go they hire you know go and hire people. They hire a political consultant. They talk to somebody who's a fundraiser. Somebody who's never run for office before has to have these initial conversations, talking with consultants, talking with other political professionals, and the conversation almost always goes something like this. The person who's going to run for office says, look, I don't have the most money, but no one will outwork me. I will work harder than any client you have ever had. And this consultant said just one time they'd like somebody to come in and say, you know, I don't want to work at all, but I will have all the money in the world. So you got to have, you got to have the basics. You got to have resources. You got to have money. You got to have a good message and you have to have a good candidate for all the different things that have changed and shifted, Jeremy, in politics in the last whatever, in the last half decade, decade, 20 years, 30 years. Those fundamental things are still true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're basic things that have been around for, you know, certainly the last hundred years of Texas politics of just like, you know, you better you better have some money, but have some resources and you Got to be ready to sweat. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we are certainly doing that 
in Houston. Uh, Jeremy is about to head down and check out uh, Abbott's event here at, 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 next to the uh, Republican Party of Texas Convention. Uh, we're covering this all through the weekend at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com. So, so we hope that you'll be uh, subscribers there. Uh, if you enjoyed this show, you should subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. We don't judge you. Uh, and follow us on Twitter at Scott Braddock and at Jeremy S. Wallace. And we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.